That's exactly what we're going to see today in Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9 with the Apostle Paul, of course, at this time known as Saul. He had two names, dual names, speaks of his, uh, not only his Jewish heritage, but his Roman citizenship. But today we're in Acts chapter 9, looking at the story of Paul and also of Ananias. And the title of today's message is Radical Change, Radical Commitment. Let me read for you a review of a book called Radical Change, Radical Results, written in 2003, published in 2003 by Kate Ludlam and Eddie Edrelson, speaking of companies and, and finance and businesses and change that needs to take place. Um, it says this, as it's kind of giving a synopsis of the book, develop a workforce that runs on self-renewal, passion, and productivity, and delivers results to both customers and investors throughout time. This is what's ironic. Dell, Motorola, Pharmacia, and other leading uh, organizations have used this proven program to enable company-wide change and compete more effectively. Again, in radical change, radical results, results top uh, consultants Kate Ludlam and Eddie Edrelson divulge their breakthrough seven-step process for achieving successful corporate transformation. One of the things that's very interesting about this is, of course, this book was published in 2003, so who knows how many years preceding this, the, the uh, research was taking place. But at least in a couple of those companies mentioned in the write-up about the book actually had faced some downturns because they weren't able to keep up with the changing trends in the market. You see, when it comes to radical change, though, when it's radical change that comes from God, as we see demonstrated today in the Apostle Paul, it is radical change that is truly that. It is radical, it takes effect, and it never, ever changes. Those of you who are familiar with the story of Saul or Paul and his Damascus Road conversion will know, and as we see, you'll say, man, that was truly radical change. For me, you know, I grew up in church. I grew up going to Bible study. I grew up going to vacation Bible school, to VBS. I grew up in the student ministry. I teach a Sunday school class as an adult. I've raised my family in the church. And I'm a Christian, but man, it sure didn't seem like there was radical change. You know, the good news of the gospel tells us that every person, every man, woman, and child has one major commonality, and that is we are separated from God because of our sin, violating God's law. God isn't a mean God, an ugly God. He's a holy God. And so whenever we violate his law, his way of living unto us that he's demonstrated not only through his son, Jesus Christ, but he has given us very clearly in scripture, it's called sin. And even though we were created in the image of God, every single one of us, no matter how wonderful you think you may be or how destitute you may think you are, you are special because you are created in the image of God. However, because of that sin, we were separated from God. Separated from God and absolutely unable to save ourselves. However, God's love towards us and his mercy towards us was shown and demonstrated to us, towards us and that he sent Jesus Christ, his only son, to come to earth to die for us, to die on the cross for our sins, that if we place our faith and trust in him as our savior and as our Lord, the one who takes control of our life, then God tells us, immediately radical change radical change in life we are changed 
Jesus Christ himself couldn't think of any better way to describe this radical change than when he was talking to Nicodemus, a leader of the religious establishment of his day, known as the Pharisees. And he's speaking to Nicodemus and he says, you, you cannot see heaven, you cannot uh, know God unless you are born again. Born again. So Jesus himself, as he dwelt on earth and he walked amongst us, he described this radical change of someone committing their life unto him, Jesus Christ, as our Savior and our Lord, as being born again, born anew, as if we were born all over again. That's how radical the change is. So you say to yourself, you know what, I don't have the same sort of testimony that Paul does. I don't have the same sort of testimony that my neighbor might. You still have a wonderful testimony. Because the testimony is of a person who was absolutely separated, separated from God, yet because of the love of God, you were not only restored, you were not only brought back together, but the Bible says we were adopted into his family. So verse 1 of chapter 9 says this, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters of him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, the early label of the Christian church, whether men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, Saul, trembling and astonished, said to the Lord, What do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and it will be told to you what you must do. Lord, what must I do? And God says to him, Lord Jesus says to him, Arise and go. See, at the course of this passage, we'll see two different people of whom radical, radical change and radical commitment came to. Not only Saul, known as Paul, but also the first contact, the first believer who has contact with the newly converted Saul, the new Christian Saul, Ananias. And although he comes with fear and trepidation, he plays an amazing part in the early growth of this one named Paul. And so we see that what binds them together both Paul and Ananias, they are bound by the call of radical change. The call to arise and go. Let's pray. Lord, we look, as we look at this passage today, may you show us in our hearts what we need to do. What is our arise and go moment in our lives? What is our Damascus Road moment, as many have said before? What is that moment where we need to arise and go? What is our calling in which our response to you is, Lord, just as Saul said, Lord, what would you have me to do? God, whether it is the person who sits here today who is an unbeliever, they've never given their life to your son, Jesus Christ, or whether it's the person who has been a believer for 50, 60, 70 years, we are still called to live in such a way that we, we will arise and go and we will say, Lord, what would you have me to do? May that be our calling today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So again, as we put on the screen here, both Paul and Ananias, as we'll introduce you to Ananias in just a few moments, are bound by the call of radical change, the call to arise and go. 
The first thing that we see is a radical call, radical change for the lost. Radical change for the lost as we look at and we profile this conversion of Paul. Then it says Saul, and of course he's known as Paul, his, his Hellenistic name, his Roman name. He was a Roman citizen. He was an incredible uh, figure that we see in history, not only Jewish history, and we'll give a little more background and as the sermon rolls on of his heart change, the internal change that was taking place. But he was a man of incredible stature and standing. He was a rising star in the Jewish community, a rising star in the community of the religious establishment known as the Pharisees. If you remember a little bit earlier um, in Acts chapter 7, he stands there as the group of Pharisees stoned Stephen, the first Christian martyr. He's standing there basically holding their cloaks. He's, He's in the midst of his apprenticeship as a Pharisee. He was trained under Gamaliel, as he tells us, which was one of the leading teachers of the day. He was a rock star in the making in the Pharisee community. Not only that, but because of his lineage on his father's side, he was also a Roman citizen. So he had incredible privilege to go throughout the Roman world at the time that even other Pharisees did not. This was an incredible man, Saul, known as Paul. And so we see here as this passage opens in In chapter 9, verse 1, it says, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against all the disciples of the Lord. And against the disciples of the Lord, he went to the high priest and asked letters of him from the synagogues, or to go to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, the early Christian, as the early Christian church was known, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He was a man of not only rising stature in the community, but he was a man of unbridled ambition. Unbridled ambition. Again, later in the passage, later in the sermon, we're going to talk about the internal heart change and how he renounced all of these things. But you see him breathing threats against the early church, known as the way. You see, they were the way, many think, maybe they called themselves the way because they may have thought themselves to be the ones who were preserving And we're really bringing to the future the true way of following God. The Messiah that was promised long ago to their Jewish brethren, they missed. He was right in front of their face, Jesus Christ. And so many speculate that is why they had the moniker of the way. The way. But we see these, even as they were in the midst of these synagogues in Damascus, you see that even even us that, that are believers in Jesus Christ, it gives us a glimpse into what our calling is to be. Our calling is to be, as believers in Jesus Christ, not to draw out of the world and huddle ourselves up within proverbial four walls of a local church, but our call is not only to be drawn out of the world, but to be in the world as we are looking to to spread and proliferate and, and, and speak this incredible good news of the gospel to all that we know. You see, those of the way, those were who were Christians, they went right back into the synagogues of their Jewish brethren and were speaking of Jesus. No, this Jesus, the one that you crucified, no, he really was. He has changed my heart. He has changed my life. He was the Messiah. Place your faith and trust in him. But we see going to these communities of believers, communities known as the way was this Saul, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest, the wrong authority from the beginning. He is about to meet on the road to Damascus the true authority. 
But he goes to the high priest and he asks letters from him to go to synagogues, basically saying, here I come, I come with this letter. I come on behalf of the high priest to say, uh, to, to, to come to your synagogue and I'm going to go and I'm going to investigate, I'm going to infiltrate, I'm going to investigate your synagogue and I'm going to root out all of those that are of this way and we're going to stomp out this new movement of this one known as Jesus Christ. But as he journeyed, he came, it says in verse 3, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. And then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This light, this light representing Jesus Christ, the Lord. This light spoken of uh, from time past and eternity past in, the, in, in, in all of Scripture. Whether it be dating back to the, the first five books of Scripture and chronicling the, the beginning of the history of not only our world, but of the, of the Jewish community, of the Hebrew people, whether it be right into the time of the judges, of the Psalms, of the early and late history of the, of the church, we see, or, or, or of the Jewish community, the Hebrew people, we see that this light, this light is, speaks of the truth and the presence of God right up until the time that we see Jesus Christ in the book of John, chapter 7, in the midst of the Feast of Tabernacles, where there are sojourners and pilgrims of the Jewish faith from all over the known world that have gathered in Jerusalem at the Feast of Tabernacles. And as they are gathered there in the midst of this celebration, there are these four grand candelabras that are stretching high into the sky, lit, and they are lighting, and they are representing the fact that the Messiah, the one who will bring this light of God into full fruition, has not yet come. Jesus stands in the midst of that. And he says, I am the light of the world. The truth of God, the truth for all humanity was not only brought by Jesus Christ, but it was embodied by our Savior, Jesus Christ. And this same light now strikes Saul on the road to Damascus, knocks him off of his mount. He falls to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said to Jesus, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. You know, it makes us think, and we talked about persecution several times during the study known as the beginning, the beginning of the early church chronicled in the book of Acts. We've talked about persecution. We've talked about many of our brothers and sisters throughout this world at this very hour, at this very moment that are facing intense persecution. And they are really laying it on the line for their faith. But we also talked about 2 Timothy 3.12 reminds us that all of those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer, will suffer persecution. Now in different countries and different stages of world history that persecution may look different. Thanks be unto God that we do not face the same sort of intense persecution that others do across the world. However, God works through that works in their lives and works through that persecution to purify their faith. And many of those, when we would say from afar in a country like this, we would say, where is God in that? Where is God when those are being persecuted? Many of those, if you read detailed, lengthy accounts, multiple accounts of persecution throughout the known world, throughout history, there is no doubt those who are being persecuted have no doubt where God is. They'll say, Jesus Christ is right beside me, right beside me. And I glory in sharing in his sufferings. No doubt difficult. 
but God is right beside them. So in verse 6, so he, Paul, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. You see, Paul, Saul at the time, trembling. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that also ironic that the one who traveled to Damascus, letters in his hand, authority in his hand, wielding authority of the religious establishment of the day, was seeking to go into these synagogues to strike fear in the heart of these people, those in the midst of these synagogues who were of the way, they were followers of Jesus Christ, to strike fear in their hearts, to bring trembling unto them. Now he is struck from his horse by the light of the Lord, and he stands trembling, trembling before the Lord, trembling before the Lord. But luckily, he has the proper response. He speaks back unto Jesus Christ and he says the very words of which we are called to say unto the Lord Jesus, not only at the moment of our salvation and conversion, but we are called to, to say to the Lord and say with truth throughout the entirety of our Christian life, Lord, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? You see, it speaks first of all of an open heart, an openness of heart. If you're here today and you are find yourself on this side of, of this sermon, on this side of the teaching, on the Paul side, where you have um, not come to the place yet in your life where you have given your life to Jesus Christ, it takes an openness of heart. One to say that I'm no longer going to kick against your ways, Lord. I'm no longer going to be one that kind of fights and scratches and tries to control my own life and tries to figure out how I'm going to find happiness and satisfaction and try to seek forgiveness, try to put away the pain and push it to the side, push aside the disappointment of life. I'm not going to do all of that, but I'm going to turn unto you with openness of heart. Openness of heart and say, Lord, what do you want me to do? Again, for us as believers... It's the entirety of our life. It's the entirety of our life. We must live our lives in the same way that we came to faith in Jesus Christ, saying, Lord, what would you have me to do? For us collectively, us collectively as a, blue, uh, as a group of believers known as a local church, we must ask ourselves as a local church, Lord, what would you have us to do? As we look into our future, as even if we're in the midst of a time, a formal time of looking into our future and saying, what must we do to reach Wichita and the world in the 21st century? We have got to ask ourselves, not only as individuals, but as a church collective, Lord, what would you have us to do? And as he asked that question, he was prepared and he put his money where his mouth was, rubber met the road, and, and God said, arise and go, and he did that very thing. You see, whether you are a person here today that does not know Christ as your Savior and God is knocking upon the door of your heart to open the door of your heart and give your life to Jesus Christ, or whether you're a believer in Jesus Christ here today and it's the continuance of your life saying, Lord, what would you have me to do? All of it, all of it requires action we must have our moment in life where not only we ask God what would you have me to do but we must have that moment where we arise and go action where we arise and we go and so the men 
Verse 7, who journeyed with him, journeyed with Saul, stood speechless. And they, they heard the voice, but they saw no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. Could you imagine again the one who was striking fear in the heart of those of the way, the one who was causing the trembling, now stood trembling, now stood scared to death. He had no promise of when his sight might be released, not at this point, and, and, and be restored. He stood trim, trembling. His eyes were open, but he saw no one. And they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And he was there three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. This rising star, this rising star of the Pharisees, this powerful man, this one who was on the road absolutely to worldly greatness, stood there now humbled, having to be led by the hand. You see, when it comes to one of those moments in life, those arise and go moments, as many have said, a Damascus Road moment, it requires humbleness. And oftentimes it requires a humbling. The Lord needs to bring us to a point where we are humbled in order for our hearts to be open to his work, in order for us to say, Lord, what would you have me to do? You know, I think about another one. Three days related to a humbling experience. You remember the story of Jonah. God calls him to the people of Nineveh, not only out of fear, but also out of the fact that he doesn't want to see them rotten, dirty people. He doesn't want to see their hearts turn to the true God. So he resists the call to go into Nineveh. God straightens him out with a humbling moment of, of, a, of, of him being cast into the sea and a great fish come up and swallowing him and him living in the belly of a whale of a fish for three days. That's what I call another three-day humbling experience but yet he was humbled and he turned back and the words are not there but the, the spirit is there lord what now would you have me to do what now would you have me to do you see paul speaks of that humbling experience we see not only the physical conversion but we see his heart him sharing his heart of how his heart changed in philippians chapter 3 starting in verse 3 it says this for we are the circumcision who worships God in spirit through Jesus Christ, have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also have confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks he may have more confidence in the flesh, I more so. When he, when he says, if you think you have confidence in this, as he uses that word several more times in this passage, he's saying, you think you're good on this scale? Guess what? I can top you on that scale, no doubt about it. Bring all comers. I'll top you on this scale. Is though, though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks he might have more confidence in the flesh, I more so, circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. If you want to compare uh, how good of a Hebrew we are, guess what? I'm right up there on the scale. No one's beaten me. As of a Pharisee, again, the religious establishment of the day, or of a Hebrew of Hebrews concerning law, how well you kept the law. He says, not only did I keep the law, I was a Pharisee. I kept the printed law, but I also kept the laws that were heaped upon laws, as one rabbi quoted another throughout the centuries, until we had this great expanse of laws, I kept them all. I was a Pharisee concerning zeal, 
You want to compare religious zeal? Guess what I did in my past life as we see it chronicled here in our focal passage. I persecuted the church concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But he says in verse 7 of Philippians chapter 3, but what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Jesus Christ. Loss for Christ. His humbling moment in which he was truly that. He was humbled before the Lord, therefore his heart was open. And he said with all truthfulness, Lord, what would you have me to do? If you're here today and you do not know Christ as your Savior, here later in the midst of this service, we're going to have an opportunity for you to give your life unto the Lord Jesus. If he is opening your heart today, do not resist him. Let him continue to humble and break your heart. We also see another interesting character. Paul is obviously the focal point of this passage, but we see another secondary character who also gives us a very important picture, not only of radical change, but of radical commitment. It's the one known as Ananias. First contact with the newly converted Saul. First contact and opportunity to, to lead him and disciple him and to teach him and to help to instruct him in the way of Jesus Christ. And it says in verse 10, now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. Here I am. And so not only do we see with Paul radical change for the lost, but we see with Ananias radical commitment for the saved. Radical commitment for the saved. And he said, and the Lord said to, in a vision to Ananias, he says, Ananias. And Ananias says, here I am, Lord. What a cycle in a few seconds, in a few moments, in a few minutes of fear to excitement to fear again once he figures out what God is calling him to do. Fear, first of all, that a voice is coming from heaven. And he realizes it's the Lord speaking to him. But then his fear subsides. You must see, and it gives way to excitement where he says, the Lord is speaking unto me. And I, I know my history of the church. I know my history of the Hebrew people. When the Lord comes and speaks to me, he must have a great calling for me. He must have a great calling for me, how I'm favored and chosen. But then we see soon his cycle turns back to fear as the Lord clarifies his calling. He said, arise and go to a street called Straight and inquire of the house of Judas for the one called Saul of Tarsus. He is praying. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. And you got to imagine, Ananias is sitting there as the Lord comes to him and he says, okay, uh, I, I'm sorry, can you say that again? I thought you said Saul of Tarsus. Is that who you told me? Saul of Tarsus. Oh no, you, you did mean Saul of Tarsus. I'm sorry, I thought maybe you meant Saul of Tartus or something like that. But you did mean Saul of Tarsus, the one who was coming to Damascus. We've heard of his coming. He was coming to Damascus to root us out of our synagogues. And we know that Ananias was probably a major leader of the church in Damascus. He was probably one of the very ones on a short list that Saul was coming to root out of the very church and to persecute, to arrest, to send back to Jerusalem. That's Saul of Tarsus. Okay, that's the one. But in the, in the midst of this passage, we see that he answered the same call. The same call given to Paul to arise and go. 
And although we do not see Ananias say the exact words, the words begin to develop in his heart. Lord, what would you have me to do? God says, arise and go. It needs action. And he does it. Then Ananias answered and said, Lord, I have heard about this man. I've heard many things about this man. Uh, how much harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he, he, he is here and he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. You know, you remember those old tricks commercials and the tagline the kids would always say to the rabbit, silly rabbit, tricks are for kids. Silly rabbit, tricks are for kids. You remember that? It's almost like you, you can imagine the Lord wants to say to Ananias, silly Ananias, I am the one that has the authority. I'm the one that has the authority. I don't care what name, in what name the high priest or whomever else Paul comes in. I have converted him. I am the God of heaven and earth. He's converted, and I call you to go into him. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name. Before Gentiles, we see the proliferation of the gospel throughout Paul's ministry. Go to the known world at the time. The kings, he stood before kings and gave incredible, courageous testimony of his life change. Of the children of Israel, even in the midst of persecution, being turned back upon Paul. For I must show him, I will show him how many things he must suffer for my sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house. Laying hands on him, he said, Brother Saul... He was probably like this, you know, still wondering. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has come and sent me that you might receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and Saul received his sight at once and he arose and he was baptized. He says, you are a vessel, a vessel the Lord speaks unto Ananias and he says, he is my vessel. God uses unusual vessels. You say unto yourself again, you know, I might be saved, but how can the Lord use me? I see this incredible testimony of someone like, uh, someone like Saul. Someone, uh, I, I see an incredible testimony in my day and age of someone who's really had a rough life and the Lord really just changed their heart. And they have an incredible testimony. I have this generic, boring testimony. No, 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 no. You have the testimony. You have the testimony of one, again, who is separated from God and completely destitute on your own, and you have been restored in that relationship. You have been brought back together with him, and you have been adopted into your family. You, every one of you, has an incredible testimony of the grace and love of God. And you say to yourself, you know what? I don't have the sort of wonderful eloquence of my friend. I don't have this sort of standing amongst people. I walk into a room and I shrink back in the corner. My friend, he walks into a room and he lights up the room. How can God use me? You all have a sphere of influence. Every one of you, no matter how big or small you think it may be, you all have a sphere of influence. And compared to what the world thinks is important and compared to what the world thinks is influential, God uses unusual vessels to accomplish his work because he he and he alone receives the glory so we see that ananias goes to this one who is an unusual vessel he goes his way he 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 is probably racking his brain he is probably having internal conversation the whole way there and saying oh man i hope i'm right about this i hope i'm right about this 
But at the end of the day, it showed an incredible trust in what God called him to do. Lord, what would you have me to do? God says, arise and go, and he went. That is the rubber meeting the road of faith. When we say, God, you are who you say you are, and you will do what you say you will do. And although it might be scary, it might be difficult for me, I know you've called me to do it, and I'm going to do it. That's faith. That's trust. And so when he had received food, finally, it says here in verse 19, when he had received food, he was strengthened. And then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Ever put your shoes in those disciples in the, the put your feet in the shoes of those disciples there at Damascus? You know, it's amazing, and even today and in third world countries where communication is poor, you know, standard lines of communication. And you can imagine even in that day how the the uh, the kind of telephone spreads, the grapevine has so many tentacles and things spread in such amazing ways. You see it even today. And And so word must have spread to these disciples that Saul is coming. Saul of Tarsus. And he's coming with all the authority he needs. He's coming here to root us out. He's coming here to to lead us away in chains. And what a testimony it must have been. How their hearts must have been on fire to see that this conversion was real. He was spending time with them and he was growing He was growing in his relationship with the Lord. They saw before their very eyes that radical, radical change. You know, as long as this passage has been preached, people have been asking the question, what is your Damascus Road moment? As we close today, let me ask that same question to you. For believers in Jesus Christ, you've given your life to the Lord Jesus. The question before you each and every day is, Lord, what would you have me to do? What would you have me to do? And then your call to action is to arise and go. God may be leading you to go to that tough neighbor, that tough coworker, and just say, hey, would you like to come to church with me sometime? Or, hey, can I pray for you about this? Open up those spiritual conversations. Maybe you've opened up those spiritual conversations before, and so now your call, your tough call, Your moment of radical commitment is God is saying, okay, you've prayed for them now. You've invited them to church. But it's time to share in full the good news of my son, Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here today and you have never given your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. You've never been, as Jesus said, born again. Again, all of us as human beings, we share the same problem. The problem being is that although we were created in the image of God, we were separated from God because of our sin. There's absolutely nothing that we can do on our own to take care of that sin. We can't do enough good things in life to to outbalance the bad things in life, the sin. And even so, God is a holy God, a holy God, a perfect God. And so if we stop right there, there is no good news at all. That's bad news, in fact. However, God... And his infinite love for us sent Jesus Christ, his one and only son, to this earth to die in our place, to take the punishment we deserved of our own sin. So that in him, if we place our faith and trust in him as our Savior and as our Lord, we will be forgiven and cleansed completely. We'll be given a certainty of heaven. We'll be given the abundant life in this earth. 
And we will not only all of that, but we will be adopted into the family of God. For those of you today that fall into that category, would your Damascus Road be that very same moment that it was for Paul when you come and you say, Lord, I am done striving on my own. I'm going to turn my life over to you, to your son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, may we today, those of us as believers in Jesus, may we say, as we said at the moment, we gave our hearts to God, what would you have me to do? May that be the call of our life. For those of us in this room today that do not know Jesus as their Savior, God, may today be the day that they say, I'm done striving. I'm done doing life on my own. I'm turning my life over to your, to your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And God, we pray all of these things in His name. Amen. So we come now to this time of invitation.